today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 23. As the epic saga of King David's reign nears its close, we delve into his poignant final testament, the last words of a mighty king, and the chronicling of his legendary 30. These, the last words of David, are a poetic testament of the anointed king's faith and integrity, making a fitting prelude to the end of his rule, but it also points forward to the everlasting covenant fulfilled by Jesus. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, July 13th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible in part by a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes Lutheran books and materials that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. Whether it's a catechism, a hymnal, a Bible storybook, or even a devotional, LHF provides these resources free of charge to pastors, missionaries, and lay people who request them. To learn more about LHF and how you can partner with them in this vital mission work, visit their website at lhfmissions.org. That's lhfmissions with an S on the end. Well, this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to help us explore the penultimate chapter of 2 Samuel. Wow, the next to last, we're almost done. It's the Reverend Stuart Crown. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Good morning, Pastor Crown, and welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Doctor. It's a pleasure to be with God's people this morning. Oh, well, it's so exciting to have you. You've been on before. We're glad to have you back. Uh, it's probably a little earlier for you out there in Palo Alto than it is for me. I'm in Minnesota here, but I'm glad you got up early to start our day off with the Lord's Word. Um, before we get into the text, would you mind starting our time together off in prayer? Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Gracious Father, grant to us the strength of your Holy Spirit that we as David may confess with your word upon our tongue the righteousness of your kingdom, for by this righteousness we have a firm place to stand, which can never be taken away. And in the midst of the assaults against the faith and even against the creation which you have supported by your Son Christ Jesus, keep us steadfast, that in the midst of this present world we long for the Savior who will come from heaven our Lord Jesus Christ, to establish his eternal kingdom. Grant to us this, Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, our chapter today comes on the heels of David's song. Uh, it says, when the, when the Lord Yahweh delivered him from all of his enemies, um, Maybe you want to catch the people up, let them know kind of what's the context for these very last words of David. Maybe they've missed the last episode. You know, where where have we been so we can see how it's all wrapping up? Well, these last several chapters of Second Samuel form somewhat of a addendum to to uh, to to Samuel. Excuse me, to Samuel. And he, after confessing what God has done for him in Second Samuel 22, that is, 
the great victories which he has won, not naming the victories themselves, but speaking about how God gave him the strength and the steadfast uh, faith to endure, he then rounds off his confession with these final words. Uh, it's appropriate that the author, uh, we'll call him Samuel for the moment, puts these at the end of the psalm to form a, a beautiful bow, as it might be, confessing that the kingdom which David has established by appearances by human strength has actually been founded by God's strength. And that David himself, through his victories, looks ahead not to his own victories, not to his own dynasty, but rather that which God has established, looking ahead to the righteousness of Christ. And that the victories which David achieved militarily, as we see in chapters 21 and celebrated in chapters 22, weren't carried out by David alone. This is not a, a one-man show within the Davidic kingdom. There were a great many known and unknown, and he mentions those known in this chapter. So he's had right-hand men and, we might say, left-hand men, men on both sides who have supported him. And now we get to hear about their exploits, maybe more personally, with several of these, of these men. Right, so this, this section here is really divided into two different uh, parts. This chapter, I should say, is divided into two different sections. Uh, David's last words, um, and as you mentioned, sort of David's mighty men. I guess at this point in David's life, he's things are obviously he's he's toward the end of the life, but he's established his kingdom over Israel and Judah, uh, God's kingdom that is. He's secured the city of Jerusalem as his capital. He's brought his ark, I shouldn't say his ark, but the ark of the covenant to the city. So things are looking pretty pretty settled, and and God has blessed him through these things. And so final words, I guess, are pretty important for. For just about everybody, we, we talk about the last words of people, you know, where the last things they ever said. It's an intriguing concept, but it's no less intriguing in the scriptures. The author here says, now these are the last words of David. He, he wants to illustrate that for us. Um, why do you think last words come off as so, I guess, so poignant, so important, not just for David, but I guess for anybody? Why, why are last words so intriguing to people? I would liken this to what we would call a last will and testament. They may not be the deathbed words, right. but they are the confession that you want publicly declared upon your death. And so you have clarity of thought, expression of a strong faith here for David of what God has always done. And that as he looks to the conclusion of his public reign, and is thinking about his descendants, he sees something far greater. And that's certainly what he wants to confess here. He doesn't want to confess himself. He wants to confess the righteousness which God has established using him. But he wants to see, he wants his hearers to see, his sons, Solomon, and etc., to focus not upon the riches of a kingdom or the... Uh, the military victories, but rather that righteousness that God is working through these individuals uh, for the establishment of the kingdom as a foretaste of that which is to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have this also with, uh, with Jacob in Genesis, 
and also Joshua at significant points in Israel's uh, faith history, that when there looks to be a, a close of something, there is this word that establishes the next step. That is, once David has said these things, the next generation is, is assured that what God has done in the past, he will continue to do. And that's how David puts a, a firm, or what would you say, not a, a, a firm path, a marks out the path for, for his son Solomon to follow. Well, we're going to read this section in chunks, but let's just read the very first verse, which is kind of like, if, if you're looking at this on the page, folks, it would be like the first stanza. There's an introduction. Now, these are the last words of David. Then it begins. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And now it does continue. It says, the spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. But before we continue... Um, just looking at this here, it says these are the last words of, test, uh, of of David, and you say it's kind of like a last will and testament, sort of the last proclamation. So less, you know, uh, we are all beggars, this is true, kind of Luther's last deathbed words, and more of this is what I want to leave people with. And But it begins the oracle of David. Now, that's a prophecy. We don't really think of David much in the prophetic role of the king, so... Um, tell us what, what does he mean when he says like he's the the oracle of of David? You know the 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 oracle of the man who was elevated, raised on high. Um, what does he mean by that? Well, this does have this does relate primarily to his anointing by Samuel in Second Sam in First uh, Samuel regarding the office that he is given. So the oracle isn't from David, but rather from his office. So we look mm, at the sure. office of David looking ahead. Now, this would be confirmed by the inclusion of all of David's Psalms in the book of Psalms, recognizing that what he speaks, what he confesses, is not of his spirit, but rather of the spirit of Christ speaking from him. And this Peter confirms in his Sermon on Pentecost in Acts that the, the office is speaking, looking ahead to the one who finally speaks uh, we might say from Hebrews chapter 1 that God in many various ways having spoken to our forefathers by the prophets has now spoken to us by his son. So that would establish what David is saying here or what the author of Second Samuel wants us to see here, that when you read David, you are reading God's word. That makes, uh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate the idea of it speaking from his office. You know, he's the anointed one of the God of Jacob, but, you know, by saying that he's the son of Jesse, right, that, that's how uh, Saul used to refer to him as, a, as an insult, and now he holds it up high as, as a, as a um, I guess, as a badge of honor, because that makes him a, a Judite, which, of course, is where the monarchy rightly belongs. And, of course, Jesus will come from this family, too. So, yeah, he continues. You, you, we talk about oracles. David is, is prophetic through his office. Of course, whenever he speaks the word of God, it's God really speaking through him. And he says as much in the next few verses. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. The Spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, 
When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So yeah, you, you talk about you know God speaking through him, his prophetic role. He says as much, right? Spirit of Yahweh speaks by me, his words on my tongue. Um, but then we, we get a message here about right rule. Take us through that. What, what's the message? David is establishing what God's reign is. So it will not be measured or identified by political, economic, social achievements. It is that which is righteousness. Uh, first of all, a declared righteousness that one has this bond, this fellowship with the creator, the creator of heaven and earth, not by establishing one's righteousness among men, but rather by believing what this God can do for his people, those he calls to him by faith. And that kingdom is then lived out or established, expressed in particular ways. Uh, a righteousness from God then shows itself in a righteousness of how men reign. So I would compare this to God establishing his reign, if you will, through Adam in the garden, and that Adam was to cultivate, was to work in the garden in a particular way. And now David, who has done such, chiefly by looking ahead to building a temple for, for Yahweh, that David sees working in this garden in a particular way. He recognizes the people of God need to be shepherded not by man's power or preferences, but rather by the gift giving, namely to draw them to the temple, uh, how God would rule over his people through his faithfulness to provide for them daily bread, uh, the, re the rescue from the pit, uh, the rescue from sin and condemnation, to have a free life before him to receive what he desires to give. Yeah, you can hear David using this beautiful imagery to describe the, the impact of, of, I guess, righteous rule, righteous leadership. Um, you know, because it says here, and it's a little difficult if you're not looking at it on the page, the Spirit of the Lord, the God of Israel, the Rock of Israel, those are all, of course, you know, allusions to, or references, I should say, to, to God himself. And, and, and God's the one who said, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, and now we have all this just refreshing imagery, right? Morning light, sun shining forth, uh, a refreshing rain. Like, so, so ruling over men is to be done in the fear of God, both humanly speaking, right? As we seek mm -hmm. out rulers, as you said, that David is, is hoping for, or, or, you know, through David, God is, is foretelling a time when the ruler is going to be righteous and point people to the right things. So do you see this, of course, pointing forward to Jesus, or is that pointing too far? I, I kind of do. It works in both ways. I do think that David sees, as far as he can see, immediately the consequences of a righteous reign. His own unrighteousness had profound implications for his own day. And then his example would have been known by Solomon. I'm speaking of Bathsheba, Uriah, etc. Sure. And Solomon would have understood that. And 
how then Solomon would conduct a righteous reign. So the, the fear of God is, if you will, how do men reign? How do they exercise authority and power in accord with God's creation? Do they try to swim upstream? Do they try to counter what is obvious in nature, God's power and, and majesty as deity? Or do they govern in accord with that? And then secondly, do David and his descendants govern in accord with the revealed word of God? Do they call people to repentance? Do they call people to faith in God's governance? That when you look at all the rulers and authorities of men and how they failed, is it possible that God has someone in view already that people should trust? As, as Daniel says, that mountain that crushes all of the other kingdoms, that shatters men's pretensions. And David says, that's what we're looking ahead to. So, and, I, and I'm trying to get my mind around this. So we, we have a lot of times in the narrative around David, it's a contrast with King Saul, right? David is like the anti-Saul, um, or maybe Saul's the anti-David, depending on how you want to talk about it. But, but you know, he— he ruled righteously in the fear of God. Yes, of course he has his mistakes. Of course he has his sins, grievous sins. But he always turns to the Lord. That's the message. And I guess what I hear you saying is he's looking forward, trying to lay down, of course, God speaking through him, because it just says that flat out. But God is establishing that there's a righteous way to rule and an unrighteous way. Saul represents the unrighteous way. David is on the track to being the righteous way. Uh, and I guess David's looking to his son who will continue on and, and pray that he rules righteously in the name of Yahweh. And of course, we want every ruler to do that, but that's ultimately only able to be completely fulfilled uh, in, in Jesus. Because I, I, I say that because we have the, the next verse, which talks about an everlasting covenant. So it seems like God's really pointing forward to the eternal kingdom that he begins with David, um, in addition to talking about just practical things like how human rulers should rule. Yeah, yes, that, that covenant is, is the expression of how or the overarching, can I say, umbrella under which that the righteousness of a authority of a ruler would be expressed. Now, that doesn't sound so clear. Let me put it this way. Uh, maybe your ruler, maybe your listeners have heard this before. If one thinks of a, of a pyramid, uh, typically we think of the authority as the pinnacle. But as I read this part of Samuel, and in fact, all of the kings, and with our Lord Jesus Christ, the pyramid is actually inverted, and the king is at the bottom, upholding everything. And it's within that covenant blessing that God has given the king that he is to rule righteously. The covenant establishes him as the, the bottom of the pyramid. And a righteous reign would support everybody above him, uh, namely the poor, uh, the soldier, those who are taken advantage of by the powerful in society. And if that bottom of the pyramid wobbles, if David rules or Solomon rules unrighteously, the whole pyramid begins to wobble and tip, as you can see with the unrighteous kings or, of course, those in the northern kingdom. So David looks ahead to that, that righteous king, as Isaiah does in Isaiah 9 and 11, one who will not totter, one who will not be taken by bribes, 
one who will uh, feed God's people in both body and spirit and conquer the great enemy, of course, death and condemnation because of sin. Uh, I mean, that's the expansive view that David, I think, wants us to see here, sure. given that Matthew 1 begins with a reference to, to Jesus as son of David. Uh, the scriptures make that connection for us. Absolutely. Let's let's keep reading the rest. Actually, this is going to be the rest of this sort of what they describe as the last words of David, 5 through 7. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me, or pardon me, he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help. I am so sorry about that. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Okay, well, aside from my poor reading of it, he begins by talking about how, basically, if my house were not right with God, you know, would he have made this everlasting covenant? Is is that how we read that? Like, if, if I weren't right with God, or if God hadn't made me right, would he have made an everlasting covenant and arranged it and secured it and... And and you know would would all things wouldn't be secure if uh, if if I hadn't have been righteous? Is that how we're reading that? It it's, it sounds strange. Yeah, I'm not sure that we should read the four in the second line of verse five as saying because because David did these things, therefore there's the covenant, or rather oh, sure. because he has made a perpetual covenant covenant with me, therefore my dynasty stands secure. I don't think David's going to contradict what Nathan the prophet said to him about God establishing the covenant, the household. Uh, David recognizes his sin. He is acknowledging it. And the only way that he ever made it through his family issues with Absalom, et cetera, was because of God's faithfulness. And so if we keep God at the center, we'll understand what David's confession is. Uh, he always delivers me. He has made all things secure for me. Signed, sealed, and delivered by Yahweh himself. And I think that's important to remember because we can be thrown off by that that first line, you know, because he says, for does not my house stand so with God? And so many people often make that connection, right? So God's going to bless me so long as I do everything right. Uh, and then I can even make some mistakes like David did, and God's going to bless me. And, and we have a covenant. He's given me my, his, his, uh, the faith in his son, Jesus, and, and he's going to keep it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think there's this careful balance we need to make between recognizing what is the truth, which is what you said, that, that our faith, the covenant that he made with David, the covenant that's fulfilled with Jesus, all of that is God's work, 100%. He gets 100% of the credit. And even when we do those righteous things that are required by God, required by our faith, well, then we still don't get the credit because God works through us to make them happen. So I I wanted to illustrate that because it could be read, and I've heard it read, where David's basically saying, I did the right things, except for a couple things, and therefore he has made an everlasting covenant with me. And And I like that you bring us back to um, back to the prophet, because no, that's that's not how covenants with God work. Um, typically, human covenants require two sides 
Um, and, and so does the covenant God makes with us, but he does all the heavy lifting. Yes, I would liken this to what Paul says at the end of Romans 5, beginning of Romans chapter 6, that God forbid we take liberties with his grace. We've died with Christ, we're risen with Christ. And David, circumcised and anointed, would say the same thing with Paul, that he's not living by his righteousness, but his kingdom is a testimony of God's righteousness. And that's the prosperity that David wants us to see. I think, as you said, to begin to measure our success as a, as a way to, uh, as, as proof of our faith, that as we prosper, therefore, we are assured that we are faithful. Uh, runs it backward with what Jesus says about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 5. It's about the poor if you will, the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, uh, not those who are rich, who have a secure and prosperous life. They're not the ones assured of the kingdom. Well, and then he, but he does switch, you know, and, and I understand why people might think this way, because on the one hand, he's talking about righteous people and he's referring to himself. And now he's talking about the wicked people, what will happen to them. So righteous people uh, will be will be standing with God, and the wicked people are thrown away into the fire. Uh, reading it once again, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So, in in contrast to the righteousness which you receive by the covenant of God, not which makes you worthy of the covenant. There are those who are worthless, those who reject God's covenant, those who don't, um, those those just are good for nothing, like thorns, and it's a very common biblical expression there. Um, but but what are we to understand by those verses six and seven? You know, who is the man who touches them with the iron and the shaft of the spear? I, I know what that means um, um, literally, right? You protect yourself when you're digging out the thorns, but what is he pointing forward to? What is he talking about? I think if we were to begin with Psalms 1 and 2, both of those Psalms provide a fantastic commentary on what David himself acknowledges. Namely, there is but one path of righteousness, and they are the ones who trust in God, meditate upon his promises. And those who do not meditate cannot bear fruit. Therefore, being dead, they're cast away, they're dug up and thrown into the fire, they're chaff. And Psalm 2 then expresses uh, David's own hope, the establishment of the Son of God. And if one does not uh, heed his reign, if one rebels against him, one will be also consumed. Uh, why do the nations rage in vain? Uh, kiss the Son. Uh, acknowledge, uh, submit at this point, or the consequence will be eternal. So we're looking ahead to not simply what happens within the next 20 or 30 years with Solomon, but rather the final judgment. That's what David sees here. He may not see it as fully as Revelation does, but he sees uh, the, the outline, certainly. Well, I tell you what, we're going to take a break, folks. Don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we're going to change gears a little bit. We'll wrap up everything we have on this first part, but then we're going to delve into the second half of the chapter, which details the exploits of David's finest warriors. 
that when we come back. And Pastor Crown and I will keep on going through the end of the chapter. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Stuart Crown, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Before we get back to the topic at hand, I want to remind you that you're welcome to reach out to me anytime with your questions or comments. You can reach me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. If you're looking to take the show on the road or maybe catch up while in the car or on a long flight or maybe even on vacation this summer, imagine listening to KFUO from the beach. Wouldn't that be great? Well, I recommend that you look into subscribing to Thy Strong Word as a podcast. Now, if you're new to podcasting, you just don't know where to start. I have an easy solution for you. It's the KFUO radio app. You can download it on your Android or your Apple phone. You can listen to the station live, wherever you are, wherever you have an internet connection. You can subscribe and listen to uh, many of KFUO's great programming, uh, also on demand, like The Coffee Hour, Sharper Iron, Concord Matters, Cross Defense, Lutheran Ladies Lounge, Wrestling with the Basics, Thy Strong Word, of course, and a lot more. You can also listen live or on demand just by heading to kfuo.org on any internet connected web browser. So you're never really far away from helpful hosts and knowledgeable guests like my guests to want, uh, uh, you know, to connect you to God's Word. And that's what we're wanting to do. And that's what we have today, a great guest. And he's taking us through Samuel chapter 23. Brother, before uh, we move on, though, uh, anything else that you want to make sure people know about this first half? Because it does kind of shift gears here and it goes away from the poetry of David's song and his last words. It starts sort of detailing, I don't know, I, I guess I would say like his elite force, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Anything else you want the folks to know? Not to question our forefathers' wisdom in dividing the chapters and verses the way they have, mm-hmm. but it might be well to understand the beginning of chapter 23 as, as we mentioned earlier, this codicil to the end of the psalm of chapter 22 bringing it to this glorious conclusion, this confession, what David wants his people, his descendants, and therefore us to hear about God's kingdom established in Christ. And then to move into this next part would be to say, how such things are established on earth, one might say, as they are in heaven, at least as a foretaste of the the righteous eternal kingdom of Christ. Sure. Yeah, I think I would have made a new chapter here in uh, connected, connected that, like you just said, 23 to the end of 22. 
but here we are. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to read. And, and by the way, just to give everybody a nice warning out there, there are a ton of uncommon Hebrew names here. So I'm just going to do my best to read them with confidence. I, I've gone through them at least once, but there's uh, there's no guarantee that I'm not going to stumble many times. So uh, feel if, if it really bothers you, feel free to email me with correct pronunciations. I'd appreciate that. All right, so here we go. I'm going to read, oh, just through verse 12. So 8 through 12. Here we go. These are the names of the mighty men of David, Joshebasheth, a Tekemonite. He was the chief of three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at once. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And Yahweh brought out a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of th lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it, and struck down the Philistines, and Yahweh worked a great victory. All right, that's just the little first part here. The, the whole section is divided into two groups. It's, it's these three, and then the 30, although even the list of the 30 contains more than 30 men. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But let's start with these three. Um, why, why is David highlighting, or I should say the author, pardon me, why is the author highlighting these particular men of David's men? I think you alluded to it already, but... But why do these guys get mentions here in the scriptures? Well, first, we should not spiritualize what is happening within David's era, nor what happens after David's era. That is, that we simply say we need strong men. These are men who fulfilled the call in the fourth and fifth commandments about providing security for families and also protecting their neighbors. They were God's means wielded by David to protect families, to protect his kingdom, to protect righteousness. And so I think that's the first reason these men are mentioned here. They are exemplary in fulfilling their vocations as men. And we will note that there are no women mentioned here. These are men who put their lives on the line for the sake of righteousness. We might even say that this is part of a, you know, a special ops team, the, the people who came on to you know, CL6 or something like that, or the men who might be named for uh, Blue Star Highways. I think you have a couple in Minnesota. Uh, that these are the men who would be recognized on monuments in Washington, D.C. Or, or capital cities. And the memory of... The righteous is a blessing to recognize how God used such people in difficult times for this establishment of his reign. I think that's a good place to begin. No, and that makes sense, right? Because he's emphasizing these men, the, their courage, their loyalty. They represent this dependable military force that contributes to David's successful reign. And so 
yeah, I, I can see that he's wanting to not only honor the men themselves, but probably more importantly, uh, their their commitment, you know, their bravery and loyalty. Um, and those things I think we continue to value really in everybody, men and women alike. But but in this particular section, yeah, we're talking about um, men of war, mighty men. Um, the Hebrew there can be translated something like, you know, heroes of the army too, or mighty warriors. Um, but, you know, during this time, a king is nothing without his his forces. And these are the the cream of the crop, the best of the best, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we the first three uh, attempting their names again, we have Joshep, Josheb, Bashabeth, um, Eleazar and Shema. Um, we have these guys as the as the first here and we get some events, right? You know, he wielded the spear against 800. That's that first guy, uh, Josheb Bashabeth. He wielded his spear against 800. When we get that story in First Chronicles, the number is reduced to 300. I'm not sure it's worth trying to um, <laughs> mitigate that difference here. But but basically, uh, the next one is we have Eleazar, and he does this great battle, and it brings to people's remembrance all the things that the that the Lord is doing for them, all the things that Yahweh is doing through them. So as much as it's elevating these great men, these mighty men, I think it's also a way to pass down God's victory. Like when we see those same, you talked about monuments in Washington. When we see those monuments, do we really think of the men themselves or do we think about sort of the movements that those men either started or, or represent? You get what I'm saying? So I think we see that here yes. too. It's, 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 more about, it's more about the story than it is even the man. Yes, I don't think that you can have the idea of justice without it being embodied. You can't have victory unless it's actually achieved in a physical manner. The evil that we confront isn't this this ethereal wickedness. It's lodged in people in, in terrible ways. And these particular men fought against that. I, I think if we modified, paraphrased, the Lord brought about a great victory. If we said uh, that word for victory is, I believe, salvation, can be rendered salvation. I think if we said the Lord brought about a Jesus event, that might remind us of what these men are working toward. In each of these victories, it was a foretaste of the greater victory that Jesus was about to achieve, of the same way in which the judges would have uh, been little deliverers, uh, tiny saviors, these men were those kind of men in these particular battles. They did a Jesus thing. Mm. Well, this next um, few verses here, it, it, it could be defined as an example of what these three men did, or it could simply be three anonymous men. Um, I think the scholars debate that, but we're going to read it and, and, and you know what, for my, for my sake, I'm just going to think of it as the, the men that have been named, because it makes sense. So here we go. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. 
and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to Yahweh and said, Far be it from me, O Yahweh, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So, brother, before we start breaking down what the three mighty men did, do you have an opinion on whether these three mighty men mentioned in this paragraph are the three that have been mentioned or three other guys? Uh, I know it really doesn't matter, but I'm just curious what you think. It seems that they would be the men mentioned beforehand. Uh, Otherwise, who are these three? Um, As you said, it doesn't matter so much as it would the devotion to the Davidic dynasty, the the commitment, the loyalty that they showed to David would resemble that which David had to his own Lord. And that is probably what we're getting at when David will not drink the, the water that they risk their lives for. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it, it describes the story as happening during harvest time. So it's hot, it's dry, as it would be during at least one of their harvests. And he, David's at that cave. And so so I guess he's just sort of, he's saying, I don't know, I guess he, how, how can I describe this? David's sitting there and it's not like he's ordering them to get this water. He's just sitting there going, Oh boy, would wouldn't I love this water? Wouldn't I remember the water from the gate of Bethlehem? Boy, I would I would just love to have some of that water again. Um, and so these guys say, "Well, if David wants that water, let's go get it." And they risk their lives to go get it. And, and when they get back, David's like, "Oh man, I was okay. I was not. Uh, I was just sort of reminiscing." And then he pours it out to the Lord as sort of a drink offering. Am I getting the narrative right here? You know, is David, he, he didn't command them to go get it just to pour it out. He was just sort of saying, oh, I, I remember the good water we used to have back at the house. Yeah, I mean, he is, um, he is risking the lives of the soldiers, these men, these disaffected, these men in debt, these men who have been oppressed by Saul or disappointed by Saul. And David gathered the men around himself, as it were, and offered them something which Saul could not. And as the anointed, there was something greater than David taking place. So as David protected them, when David spoke, they had this familial, this family, uh, this father-son obligation to fulfill the father's wishes, uh, even though the father not commanded them to do such. So again, I think it speaks of this great loyalty these men had in the midst of uncertain times. And then when David poured it out, he recognizes that this loyalty cannot be to him. He cannot be the recipient of such risk. Uh, Such things can only be given to the Lord, only poured out before Yahweh as an offering. That makes a lot of sense, too, you know? I mean, because on a first read of this, you think, well, David's asking for this water, and then when they go risk their lives to get it, then, well, you know, he pours it out. But I I like the way you explain it. I I still think that David's here just sort of saying things, maybe without even consideration of every word he say is going to be taken as gospel from these guys or as a personal mission. But but it does. It's seen that way, and rightly so. That they are loyal to David. David, 
sort of mentions in passing, boy, I would love that water that we used to have in Bethlehem. And these three guys go on a special surgical incursion to go get it. Uh, It kind of reminds me a little bit of the honor of Uriah. You know, Uriah comes back from battle. David is scheming, as we all remember that uh, event. And, And Uriah is faithful to, in this case, his men by not going into his wife, by not receiving the benefits of being home. And David here sort of happen chance now has all this water that he's been asking for from from Bethlehem, which really isn't much different than water from anywhere else. But he's going to say, you know what? No, I'm not going to enjoy these comforts um, because, as you said, Pastor, uh, these guys are so devoted to me, but they need to have that devotion to to Yahweh. That's who really, I guess, deserves this drink, so to speak. And then he pours out this this sort of drink offering to him. Am I right uh, in, in that? Yes, in that I, I would agree that uh, notice these uh, things the three mighty men did. So it's not about the honor of David so much, but rather what the mighty men did. Uh, rather yes, that very it's good. oriented toward David, but it's acclaiming their fidelity to the reign and what they have achieved in, can I say, the righteous expression of their vocation. Yes, that is a very good thing to point out, and something I kind of miss is yeah, we we can tend to make it too much about David, but no, you're you're hundred percent right. This is about them and their loyalty to David. Very good point. Very good point. Well, I'm going to read a couple more verses now. It it continues with verse eighteen. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name besides the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Uh, Pausing there, Abishai, we've heard about him a lot. We've heard about Joab a lot, and we've heard about the sons of Zariah a lot, which have been used really as an insult, but but here it seems to be a a mere descriptor. But he's chief of the thirty. This, you know, David Seal Team Thirty here. <laughs> but uh, but he uh, isn't of the three. I, that, so that's interesting. There seems to be a division here between the thirty and the and the three. This sort of, um, I guess, uh, inner circle. I don't know how else to say it. Yes, I I might relate it to how one makes progression through our own armed forces. Uh, both the ranks and the honors, the medals which one attains, and then how might one be appointed to, oh, a Department of Defense position or Secretary of State. You know, Colin Powell does certain things within the Army and then goes into the administrative aspect. And so that might be a rough parallel. Uh, The actual events that one does uh, gains honor but one might not have the the prowess at all times to be within that SEAL Team 30, as you said, uh, but rather to administer what happens to those individuals who send them off to the particular duties, their exploits. 
Well, and, and their exploits are interesting here. We always see these whole numbers, too, when it talks about they struck down 300, stuck, struck down 600. I think it's probably worth mentioning that they are exactly as they sound. They're just kind of roughing it. They're not exactly, they didn't go count them or anything. It's just describing his his mightiness and, and how he was renowned and, of course, became the commander. Well, in the next section, we have another uh, guy mentioned. Here we go. And Beniah, Benaniah, Benaniah, I think that's what we're going to say, Beniah, that's how I'm going to settle on it. Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Beniah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name besides the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Okay, well, butchering of names aside, once again, we have another guy who has uh, made a name for himself, and he was over the bodyguard. Uh, I think it's uh, this Benaiah, Benaiah, however you want to say it, I think we have him here as, uh, I guess I'm being hung up on some of his exploits. The one that's mentioned are the Aerials of Moab. I don't know what an aerial is. I don't know that people do know what an aerial is. Um, I don't know that we know what the Hebrew word actually means. Uh, and then he struck down an Egyptian who they are sure to note was a handsome man. And I'm not sure how that applies. <laughs> <laughs> but but tell us a little bit about Benaiah before we move on to the next guy. Well, uh, the two the first two exploits are, of course, interesting. Uh, maybe two sons of Moab. And they were lion-like. Uh, Ariel is related to probably something like lion-like, lions of God. So okay. they were mighty men of Moab. Uh, not to confuse anybody, they, but they might be the Goliaths of Moab, if you will. That fierce fighters that he takes on. And one champion defeats two champions of Moab. So he is a man of renown. And then he... He dispatches a lion, probably in a cistern, gathering water, and if you can't get water from the cistern because of the lion, what do you do? Well, he jumps into the cistern and takes on the lion within a closed, it's a cage match between the lion and Benaiah. And therefore, he is noted. Um, what man wouldn't have a story told about him if he fought a lion within a small room hand-to-hand? And yeah, most that's, notably, that's definitely going to get uh, passed yeah, around in the in the when they start yes. telling war stories. And uh, well, the day when the sword fallen uh, still doesn't fall very often in in Palestine, uh, so it's a notable day. And then this third category, uh, or the third event, this Egyptian, a handsome man, it's used of David, uh, but I would probably render it more like uh, impressive as a soldier. Uh, probably not referring to his uh, GQ features, but rather to his outstanding sure. nature as a soldier, given Got what it. is described after that, a spear in his hand. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, we have to recognize when people are doing translating work, right, going from the original language to a language that's different, one that, you know, uh, those who don't know the original uh, can understand, they have to make a translation, but I would almost call it an interpretation. You have to make an interpretation when you're translating text. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. There's probably a connotation that's a little less obvious, but it is sort of interesting that they bring that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, if for, for the listeners, First Chronicles chapter 11 is the parallel, and it does add some details that we don't have in this chapter, and also uh, suggests other names, but there are ways that the translators deal with that, which we probably won't have right. time to in this session. No, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and go into the rest of the chapter. This is the section I've been dreading the whole time. <laughs> this is verses 24 through 38. There are some names here, folks. Uh, if you have a Bible, you should get it out. Read them for yourself. But here we go. I'm going to do my best. All right. So folks at home, pray for me. Here we go. Starting with verse 24. Uh, Ashahil, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema of Herod. Elika of Herod, Helez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezer of Ananoth, Anathoth, uh, Mebunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Mahaori of Netophah, Heleb the son of Baana of Netophah, Ittai the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin. Benaniah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abialbon the Arabathite, Asmaveth of Bahorim, Elihaba the Shaalbanite, the sons of Jashen, Jonathan, Shammah the Herorite, Ahiam the son of Sharar the Herorite, Eliphlet the son of Ahashabai of Maaka, Elaim of the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Paari, the Arabite, Igal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelech, the Ammonite, Nahari, or Naharai, of Beroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zuriah, Ira, the Ithrite, Garab, the Ithratite, and Uriah, the Hittite. 37 in all. All right, so thus endeth the text and my torture as I try to read these Hebrew words. Well, I tell you what, uh, so these are the 30, and then it ends with 37 in all. Um, And the text, for what it's worth, only lists 35 men. So I'm not sure how the narrator calculated the whole total here, or even if it's important, but uh, kind of an interesting discrepancy. Uh, but the point is, you know, I guess the 30, wouldn't you say, is is kind of like a, uh, it's like the name more than a specific number. It's like the 30, but we have like, you know, 37 people in it. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I think that those who wish to discredit the Bible would want to compare this with First Chronicles and uh, point out that difference and also how you count them here. I do think it's relatively easy to come up with the 37 that the author names in 39. There are five named in verses 8 through 23 and 30 in verses 24 through 39. 
And then one would say that there are two sons of Jashin, but they're unnamed in verse 32. So that's the way you come up with 37 as it is. But again, that 30 may be an honorific. We belong to this kind of battalion, uh, this, kind of, this kind of group. Yeah, and that's what I would say. I'm, I'm not much into sports, but I do know, for instance, the Big Ten Conference currently has 14, 14 teams in it. Right. <laughs> so, yes. you know, I, it's not unheard of that, you know, perhaps there were 30 key men at the very beginning. And then, of course, mm -hmm. as times change and as you add and subtract people, you know, that actual number fluctuates. But we certainly have ended here with, uh, as you know, the penultimate chapter, we're getting ready to go into the, the final chapter, and we're going to do that tomorrow. But we've ended here with David's final testament, a list of his mighty warriors. What's one or two things that people should take home from this before we end our program today, brother? Uh, one comment about these list of men, the, the chief issue is not how many, but rather where they come from. The beginning of the list is chiefly Judahites, and at the end of the list is chiefly Gentiles. So you see that David gathers around him, or God gathers around David, uh, Judahite core, but also Gentiles who have committed to the cause, the righteous cause of God's kingdom found in David. So we see here that God, through David, extinguishes, can I say, the, the unrighteousness, which launches itself in real evil against God's kingdom and God's people. And all God used David in his office, and then also these men in their office, to be a bulwark, a barrier against the, the tragedy of evil in the world, and to look ahead to the righteous expression climatically fully in our Lord Jesus Christ, both in his own works, but then, of course, conquering all evil in the cross and in his resurrection. Uh, Revelation 19, where Jesus rides out, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, might be an appropriate uh, parallel to what we see here. The, the expression of a, a righteous warrior, this uh, elite warrior that God himself is, who rides out in battle for his people. Well, I think that's a good thing for us to keep in mind. As we come to a close today, I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Stuart Crown. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. Uh, the Lord be with you and all the listeners. And also with you. Tomorrow, folks, when we come back together, we'll read the dramatic conclusion to the second book of Samuel, where King David's decision to conduct a census of Israel and Judah elicits divine wrath, and it leads to a dire pestilence that sweeps the land. Struggling with guilt and desperation, David's personal journey leads him to the place where redemption and the future site of the temple await. It's a thought-provoking finale to this engrossing saga of David's life and reign, so join us tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.